Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network Live. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the first strapless EKG accurate heart rate monitor sports watches, and Vitargo, the energy replacement and recovery drink of intelligent endurance athletes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Getting ready to do your first 5K, 10K, marathon, triathlon, Spartan race? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Good Friday morning, everyone. I have an amazing show for you this morning. And I guess this morning would be referring to the West Coast, California. Um, But before I get started on the show, I want to give a shout out to the folks at Spartan Racing. They are putting on a Spartan cruise to the Bahamas with a $50,000 purse doled out to what will probably be some of the greatest uh, uh, obstacle race uh, athletes in the world in the Bahamas. And I'm going to be there, going to have a lot of fun with these guys, going to do some really crazy stuff. If you have any interest in uh, being a part of that, you can go to SpartanRacing.com and find out everything you need to know. And... So I've got Joe Gray. Joe Gray was, my God. I mean, in 2014, Joe became the first athlete in U.S. mountain running history to win back-to-back USA mountain running titles while also becoming the first male athlete to win both uphill, downhill, and uphill formats for the championship. Let me get him on the horn. Good morning, Joe. Hey, how's it going, Richard? I'm I'm wonderful, man. What's the weather like there in Colorado? Um, we got we got a little break. Uh, it's a little bit warmer today, so I'm guessing it's probably in the f- low 40s. Um, oh. but the sun the sun's been out, so I you know I'll take the cold weather. What part of Colorado do you live in? I'm in the Colorado Springs right now. Oh, okay, cool. Excellent. Yeah. So, so Joe, you know, um, first of all, I appreciate that you uh, you came and are on the show with us this morning. I, you know, I gave you late notice, and uh, you know, my bad. I apologize for that. And you know, the the topic that I had scheduled to have conversation with, and you being a running expert, I was hoping to get your feedback on it. But after you know revisiting your blog recently and looking at uh, what you know this this whole thing about this. Um, oh gosh, I can't pronounce it, but I, I, I'm going to try. Okay, this is embarrassing because I'm of Spanish heritage. Solo, <laughs> solo para salvajes. Is that how you say it? Solo para salvajes. Salvajes. You got more. Yeah. You got more Spanish in you than I do. <laughs> yeah, man. So uh, anyway, this is uh, a pretty wild, wild running event. Um, from my understanding and reading in your blog, which incidentally was a fascinating story, the way you portrayed it. Yeah, no, I mean it's um, yeah, the, the 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 race director. I'm I'm uh, pretty familiar with him. He's been a friend of mine for a few years. But um, you know, he puts on a couple different races, and they're all kind of uh, you know under the banner of Solo para Salajes. 
which is basically, you know, um, only for the savages. And, um, yeah, all the races that I've done that he puts on, you know, they're pretty, they're pretty gnarly. And, you know, you're going to go home with a couple lumps or scratches or something. You're going to go home with some kind of ailment of some sort or, uh, yeah. Or, you know, there was one, one of his races I did, um, and it was pretty crazy. We we ran through, uh, there was a whole bunch of cows and, um, in this one section. And I mean, there's so much poop patties everywhere that you could not <laughs> avoid it. It was impossible. And so at the end of the race, I mean, my shoes were, they just had gunk all over them. So they didn't even make it there, make it back home. And they wouldn't have been able to make it back home because, you know, customs, that's one of the questions they're asking you is, have you been around livestock? And, uh, you know, they could smell that through your bag. I'm sure they know <laughs> what you've been around. So, uh, oh, man. yeah, man. I mean, but yeah, they, that, that, they have some crazy courses out there, man. And, and this, this particular one that I just did, um, yeah, very technical course, the, you know, probably the most technical race that I've ever done. Okay. So let me just kind of set the stage here a little bit for you. This race begins at 11,000 feet, right? Yeah, I think it's a little bit over 11,000, actually. Okay, so you go from 11,000 feet to uh, a little bit above 15,700 feet. Is that correct? Yeah, yep, almost 16,000. And then back down. Right. Okay, so, you know, first first thought would be, okay, this altitude is just going to just suck your lungs right out of your chest. But then when you look at the pictures of the actual terrain that you're running over, it looks like somebody um, dropped a bomb in the Coliseum and there's just big chunks of, of rock <laughs> everywhere that, I mean, these are not, these are like the size of large bowling balls, but squared off and, and edged and choppy and just looks like, man, if you, if you miss, if you misstep at all, you are so screwed. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I so, mean, yeah, you, you can get hurt real easy on this course. Oh, gosh. So now, what is the total distance of that event? Um, good question. Um, I, it's it's about 22 kilometers. And, and see, and this, and this is the thing. Uh, the way the course is measured, I want to say it's 21.7, you know, to be exact. The problem is, is, you know, when you're running the race, if you were to run the shortest route possible, it's extremely technical. So you end up running a little extra because of that, because sometimes there's a, there's going to be a couple sections where um, maybe taking a, a, a more gradual approach is going to be safer. And then also on your way back down, there's going to be some overlapping with uh, some of the athletes still coming uphill. So, you know, when I measured it, I think I got a little bit longer. I'm not, I have to look back on my data, but um, you end up running a little bit extra because you got to weave a little bit. And, you know, it's so technical that you want to kind of avoid, you know, crossing paths with people just because, um, you know, like I had an incident where there was a there was somebody around the corner and I was coming down something pretty technical and they were real close to me and I tried to, you know, they kind of scared me and we scared each other coming around the corner and, you know, I ended up rolling my ankle pretty hard. And, you know, things like that happen a lot of, you know, on technical courses because you don't have a lot of time to really respond. You know, you're you're kind of falling down the, the face of a mountain and, you know, the rocks will uh, predict your your future in a sense if you're not smart, if you're not balancing properly. 
And so wow. uh, you don't want to be surprised or be caught off guard. And, uh, you know, unfortunate in a lot of races these days, it's hard to avoid that because a lot of the up and down races, there's only one route up and there's, you know, one route down. And so you have to overlap a little bit. Okay. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Now you, you start this race at around 11,000 plus feet. Um, do you, uh, how do y'all get up there? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that there, it's quite a trek to get up there to begin with, right? To the start line? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, you'd be surprised. I mean, uh, when you fly into to Mexico City, for example, you're already you know, over 7,000 feet. And so um, a lot of people will, uh, the night before the race, will stay in, you know, some of the towns and the, the little pueblos that are close to the start line, which are around eight to 9,000 feet, depending on where you stay. And so you just you do a little short little drive up the pass, you know, and, uh, and then start line's right there. So it's, it's pretty accessible. Okay. So, um, first of all, you know, I meant to say this earlier. I love Mexico. I mean, you know, my wife and I, traditionally, if we're capable, uh, we, we will ditch our home for Christmas and just go hide out somewhere in Mexico o- over the Christmas holiday, just her and I, and just, I, you know, the people are so nice to you. The service is so awesome. It's just, I love Mexico. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, anyway, you're at 11,000 feet. And uh, accessible or not, I mean, you're you're still at 11,000 feet. And then the race begins. And, uh, you know, I, again, I only got snippets of what you, you show on your blog. But the, the, the thing looks like it goes straight up. And it's like this jagged trail of these boulders that you have to dance around. What do you figure the, uh, uh, the, the inclination is on the way up? Man, you know... Uh... You know, it's a tricky course, really. Um, A lot of the pictures that I posted on my blog are of the actual mountain. And so what's interesting is you don't actually get to start on the mountain. They they wear you out before you even get there. You have to run, you know, nearly five miles um, on basically like a Jeep access kind of trail, which, you know, like uh, kind of gives you an idea of what it would be like. It's not technical, the the first part, I would say. You know, there's a few sections, obviously, if you weren't paying attention, you could get hurt. But it's basically like a, a ATV kind of trail, Jeep road. and um, But you have to run out to the mountain. And so when you and when you get to the mountain and the steep stuff starts, I mean, you're running, I would say that's it's, it's at least, um, man, that's got to be at least 30% the whole way up and down. Because uh, it's just, I mean, it's just steep the whole way up. Once you get to the mountain, there's just really no room for – you don't get to run fast ever again. <laughs> you know? uh, so how, how many people actually uh, participated in this event? Um, I'm not sure. I think a couple thousand usually come to it. It's a pretty – it's a popular one down in Mexico. Um, you know, it's been going on for years. There are uh, a couple of Americans, you know, usually come every year. Um, there are a lot of international athletes there this year. Uh one of the greats from uh, my my state, actually, Matt Carpenter, he came out, you know, back in the 90s, and that was kind of one of the first, um, you know, glimpses I had seen of the race, you know, seeing that he had done it, and uh, the race director and a lot of my Mexican friends were telling me about the race and saying that I should come out, and, you know, since no American had won it, and, you know, they're kind of 
giving me a hard time about it. So they were like, yeah, you should come out and see if you can win and see if you can break the record. And so I was, you know, up for the challenge. All right. And so uh, you got a couple thousand people that show up for this event. you got a single track trail that it, it kind of evolves to. I would imagine it looks like a, kind of a pilgrimage after a while. Yeah, there's a lot of people on the mountain. I mean, and, and they, they, there's some sections of the race where um, you can run the – like I said before, there's a direct line, and it's really difficult to run the shortest route. You know, like even – I feel like I'm pretty comfortable on technical terrain, and I didn't even run the most direct route – but you get to some of these sections where the most direct route, there's almost no one on it. Everyone's running extra, <laughs> you know, they're going around. And so, um, yeah, you just see people all over the mountain. And it's pretty cool. Okay, so of, they I'm have look- a lot of support too. Yeah. I'm looking at one of the, one of the notes that you made that I thought was pretty interesting is that you said that without question, um, I knew that falling was inevitable. So in other words, you went into this race with the intent or the knowledge that, that there's a, Better better than an even shot that you are going to fall at least once on the way down, and then everybody in the top ten would be falling or slipping and possibly hurting themselves on the way down as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was pretty much right. I mean, I had one kind of slip that actually on the race video that they did, you can see the one time that I went kind of down. Like, I didn't go, like, down, down, but, I, you know, I slid out and, you know, Everyone at the when you got to the finish line, I mean, everyone coming in, you know, there's scratches, you know, everyone's dusty, bloody. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty funny to. See. It was you there, Joe? Yeah. Okay, I thought I lost you. All right, so, <laughs> all right, so we're gonna go into a race with knowledge that you're gonna get hurt. And yay, that's fun, right? And and. Uh, so to win the thing, that means you've got to take, you know, greater chances. I think the the big thing really in a, an event like this is who's willing to take the greatest risks on the way down. Would you say that's probably pretty accurate? No, yeah, I think you hit that right on the nose, yeah. Um, especially I wanted I wanted to get that course record, and uh, after I saw how fast we went up, I figured, yeah, I could get it. But a lot of times what has happened at that race is people get to the top and they feel, you know, they get up and they, they, they get up fast and they're tired and they come down and, you know, they're not able to really handle the technical terrain. You know, for example, um, you know, Carpenter is one of the better mountain runners that we've had in the States. And he was at first place at the peak. And then he ended up getting passed by two people on the bottom or on the way down. And so, you know, my whole, my whole um, goal was when I got up to the top is to make sure I get down clean. And I was like, if I can get down without falling down and, you know, get down healthy, I should be fine. And, um, you know, that was pretty much the big goal. It wasn't like I was trying to run extremely fast downhill. I just wanted to get down safe because I felt like if you get down safe, you get down fast basically on this course. Wow. And and I've seen what you look like when you go down in some of this crazy, real steep shale and, and rock. And, yeah, you're definitely a daredevil on the way down. We, you know, you and I spoke about this once before, and I don't know since we had this conversation whether you looked into it or heard of anybody else doing it, but, you know, they do have helmets for this type of thing. <laughs> because I can't yeah, yeah, you're, you're allowed to wear them if you want, yeah. Yeah, well, remember I brought that up to you. You said, what, helmet? I never heard of no helmet. But I, I'm telling you, I mean, on this kind of thing, when you come you come blazing down a hill like that, and you got you know some sharp rock that is you know I, I don't want to sound like such a 
a naysayer, but I just, I just, I don't know. I, mean, I know how clumsy I am. I, I, I'd be a dead man if I tried something like that. I want to, I yeah. want to protect my noggin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You have a point. I mean, it, you know, you definitely don't want to hit your head on something, uh, especially you know, one of these those rocks that are really sharp and and big. You know, you trip over your foot or something and hit one that could really uh, put you out for a while. So you're like on a 30% grade for the most part, and, you know, as you suggested, it's about 20K, 20-ish K. So basically, you know, 10K going up, 10K coming down. So you're running on an average of a 30% incline for 10K for the most of this race on the way up. And, you know, again, whatever goes up has got to come down, 30% grade on the way down. What kind of pace do you think you – I mean – you know, and we talked about this once before too. You know, where I asked you, where in world, I think it was World Championships, you mentioned that, you know, you you run into an area that's got a forty percent grade, and I said you can't possibly run that. And you saw, yeah, you can. You just gotta, you know, pace yourself. So I'm yeah. asking, you ran, you run up a thirty percent grade for a ten k. Yeah, and I'm trying to I'm trying to get on the internet right now to tell you exactly what it what it looked like because. Um, I'm, I might be a little off actually because you know, like I said, the first part of the it's about 11ish k or I think 11 or so k, and then and then you start the real steep stuff. And I would imagine if you know, last time I looked at the data, there were some 40 something percent grades on the race. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm trying to see if it'll tell me an average. Um, but yeah, it's it, you know, it's real steep the whole way. And so when you're when you're you're actually running, well, give me a you know, put into context. Are you like running uh, an average nine minute pace, ten minute pace? What's it look like? You know, at that altitude, I highly doubt that you're seeing any nine or ten minute miles um, once you get on the actual mountain. The, the, the bottom miles, you know, we were we were running pretty fast because I was actually, I was I was only in third place. You know, they were those guys were really cranking on me because I wasn't used to the altitude like they were, and so. Um, the first few miles we were running real fast i would say probably even under seven minute pace uphill and then and then, you know and that's at high altitude and then um you know once the real climbing started i would imagine some of those miles were over 20 minutes you know to be honest wow wow well even I mean, still it was that's, really steep you know just just not having to pause and and you know push on your knee to get up on that angle i would imagine that's that's quite quite a quite a trip so let me ask you a little bit about the technical aspects of this type of racing. First of all, uh, I think it's been about a year ago now, uh, some friends of mine uh, participated in a race, and uh, the name escapes me, it was a marathon, but a really steep downhill marathon. And I, huh. I, don't, think it, I don't think it was above 6,000 feet to begin with, but it had a really fast descent. So over the course of just a few miles, they dropped considerably. And, and you know, this guy was wailing on it, you know, on the downhill. I think he was probably running at, you know, just just at about a five-minute pace or maybe even a little faster. And he only got about halfway down the mountain before the ambulance had to pull him off because he just, he just his, he said his whole body just basically seized up on him. And his girlfriend, who's a pretty uh, established runner herself, ended up uh, getting carted off the mountain too. And so they asked me, yeah, they asked me in respect to this altitude change, you know, this just this severe drop in altitude, whether that had some kind of effect on them. 
Have, have you heard of anything like this before where, you know, basically your, your body just kind of seizes up because of this shift in altitude? Um, you know, I, I would imagine that probably wasn't the biggest issue. The biggest issue was probably, you know, either dehydration or the fact that they ran, you know, they ran beyond their means too soon in the race because of the first part being downhill. And, you know, maybe they, their body just couldn't handle it when it came back to running flat. Um, you know, I've run downhill races before that drop from altitude and, uh, you know, almost like the one that they did, you know, I did a road race like that before. And, um, the one thing I realized is, is when you're running downhill for an extended period of time, especially on concrete, what happens is you get all these micro abrasions in your quadriceps. And so they're just thrashed. And then all of a sudden you start running flatter, you run even a 1% grade and it feels like a mountain. And it's because, you know, you have a ton of lactic acid, and your muscles are, have all these tears in them, and so you know it can it can feel very difficult. You know, it, there's not much you can do about it because that's a muscular issue. Um, and then you know, also it can, it can be dehydration too. Sometimes you don't drink when you're running downhill because you feel so great. Yeah. Well, you know, so, I try to visit I try to visit all those points with them, and, and you know, we just couldn't. You know, just based on the conversations we had, I couldn't quite put my finger on what was uh, specifically wrong with them. But I do know that you're, you're probably point on in, in respect to the damage in the muscle because they were um, they were pretty they were pretty beat up after the event you know for several weeks and these are people that are accustomed to doing a lot of running and a lot of racing and, and they you know they were just hurt so you know they probably right. went at it like you suggested just you know with the downhill the, the, the flurry of, of speed that they threw at it um, probably was just a little bit more than they could muster. Right. They didn't, yeah, yeah, they didn't finish. They they DQ'd. So, all right. So so I got another question for you, and this is kind of a fifty thousand dollar question. Um, oh, uh, have, wait, before you go before you go on to that, I did yeah. I looked it up real quick for you. Um, okay. Uh, there's a lot of uh, segments that are over fifty percent grade. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's. I don't know how to get the average of a specific area because I'm just new to this kind of GPS internet yeah. thing but um yeah i'm looking i'm just kind of scrolling through the last few miles of the ascent and and the descent and a lot of it is you know 40 plus percent and a couple of you know in a couple periods of time where you're over 50 percent so it's uh, very steep okay so you know while we're talking about this mountain um you know i, I haven't brought it up because i'm just not I'm, I'm afraid to butcher the name of this this mountain would you give it to us you can call it you can call it itza you know a lot of people call it that when you're in mexico Say it again. Ista. Ista? Yeah, you can it's, you know, it's kind of like short for Ista Siwa. Yeah, so East it's Ista Chihuahua. is that how how do you pronounce the whole thing? Ista Siwa. Ista Siwa? Okay, just the way it's yeah. spelled it just kinda of throws me off. It's, it's a word Siwa from Scotland. the Nahuatl language. It's actually not Spanish. Right. It's it's from uh from the, the Indians, right? Uh, yeah, it's indigenous. It's the Nahuatl, Nahuatl language. Okay. Which is it's a version of Spanish, but yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't learned to speak that just quite yet. <laughs> I tried. I tried to learn it once, you know, once uh, a couple times ago when I was in Mexico just for fun. And uh, it's a difficult language to learn, for one, because if you know the basics of Spanish, it's hard to change, you know, because it is somewhat similar. It's almost like... Um, a French person learning Portuguese, it could be difficult because they're so similar. Uh, if that makes sense. So, 
Uh, yeah, it does, kind of. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, my heritage is Cuban, and the dialect in Cuba uh, relative to Mexico is very different. And, you know, the right, rate of right. speed that the Cubans uh, speak commonly relative to the Mexicans is like, is like you know, they're on crack or something, you know, it's just really fast. <laughs> but but uh, so anyway, for whatever it's worth. So, but okay, so I want to go back to the, this technical stuff for a minute. Uh, okay. So the fifty thousand dollar question I had was, and I know, I know you're sponsored by Scott, so in full disclosure, we got to say that. But um, what type of shoe? And when I say what type of shoe, I'm referring to you know the you know the the whole tirade of things that have been going on with the shoe industry. You know, with uh, uh, Hoka being, you know, the big heavy-soled shoe and a lot of companies following similar format. Then there's, of course, the minimal shoes, and then there's a traditional shoe. If you were to categorize the type of shoe that you go to for this type of race, what would you call it? And you can go ahead and plug it if you like it. Um, you know, the shoe I used was the Scott T2 Kinabalu. Um, and if I ran the race again, I would use that same shoe. Uh, to kind of give you an idea of what it's like, it's it is not as high of a profile, you know, as um, you know, you're not the midsole is not as thick as say a, your typical Hoka shoe. Um, it's not as minimal as say like a Vibram shoe. It's kind of in the middle, um, but it also has a rock plate, and so you know it has good traction for technical rocks and technical terrain. But it also has that rock plate because there's going to be periods of time where you know you're running fast. Sometimes you're going to step somewhere where you maybe didn't mean to step, and if you had a shoe that was too soft-soled or didn't have a rock plate or the midsole was just extremely light and flexible, then uh, you're probably going to get something pinching through, and it could, you know, it could char your race up. And um, you know, like I said, that shoe has has been perfect for me for when I've done races on technical terrain. Um, you know, one of my uh, one of the one of the guys that I've really big been uh, following in terms of his career and uh you know he's been a guy who's been kind of like in a sense you know one of the pioneers of mountain running but uh he runs for scott sports and marco de gasperi and you know he runs some really technical stuff too and he likes to race in that one and so you know we've talked before about you know what's a good shoe for certain courses and um you know that that was just a perfect shoe for that particular race I think you wouldn't want a shoe that's um, too high of a profile, and you definitely wouldn't want one that's too low just because, you know, if it's too high of a profile, then I think you have problems balancing, um, especially coming downhill, if you're trying to run fast. You know, okay. it's a little bit too technical to have such a high center of gravity. Right, and I agree with you completely. So I, I, uh, let's talk about this rock plate for a second. I, I just want to uh, draw a picture in my mind. I'm assuming this is okay. some some uh, some hard material that's like running through the midsole. Yeah, exactly. You know, and they put it kind of in between the outsole and the midsole, and um, it'll basically, you know, you'll see companies who will make some that are more durable, more flexible, um, that maybe won't allow small rocks penetrate but something really sharp would penetrate and then some companies get really serious and they throw real thick ones in there real stiff ones they put it across the whole foot plate um you know and some companies only use a part a partial uh, you know like the front part of the foot or or just the heel and, the, and then the forefoot area um we have the grip three and that one is 
pretty much the entire footplate, and that shoe would have been great for this course too. But it is for more, I would say, you know, an ultra type of distance because it's a little bit clunkier, it's a little bit heavier, it's got a lot of protection, whereas the Kinabalu is a little bit lighter, um, meant for like really fast-paced running and also to give you that protection. And so um, the rock plate is a little bit more flexible in the Kinabalu. Right. Okay. So um, at the end of the day, your go-to shoe for the type of running that you're accustomed to doing and you know your claim to fame, this really steep and uh, treacherous uphill, downhill type stuff, you go with a pretty, um, I don't want to say minimal because um, uh, that conjures up the idea that, you know, your your toes are showing through basically, but something <laughs> that provides you with enough protection, but as light as possible is kind of where you go. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, um, some people get too concerned about the weight of a shoe. And, you know, I, and I'm the same way. I, you know, I come from a road background, you know, or a track background. And, and so I think when you come from that background, your first idea of, of uh, using a shoe for racing is, oh, I want the lightest shoe. I want to be able to fly up this hill. And um, the problem with that is, you know, comfort is going to be more important in a mountain race and protection because, you can have the lightest shoe and get, you know, you can be a two minutes ahead of everybody. And then all of a sudden the course changes. And now that light shoe is really giving you problems. And all of a sudden you're in fifth place now. And so, you know, you really got to make sure that your body's protected and you're, you're supported because that's what's going to get you to the finish line, you know, in a, in one piece and, and as best, you know, fast as possible. And, uh, right. You know, like I said, you got the protection. That is really huge when you start talking about technical courses. Well, and then uh, assuming that uh, it, it becomes a function of managing threat. So if, if, if the course is less technical, then obviously you would vie for something that was uh, maybe uh, still light um, and uh, obviously probably much closer to the ground so that you, you, you get the afferent feedback from the ground. Are you, are you kind of that school of thought? Um, or, you know, I, I guess where I'm going with this, and I'll just go ahead and spit it out, is you, you haven't been drinking from the Kool-Aid in respect to these really big, mushy, soft, high-off-the-ground type of shoes. <laughs> no, you know, um, for me, I'm just not a huge fan of, of that type of running um, just because – of what I do, um, I think when you're trying to like perform at a high level, I think you know you got to be a little bit closer to the ground. Um, for me, particularly, I mean, it, it works for some guys. You know, I've seen some guys run really fast in, in shoes that have really high profiles, and so I definitely can't say it doesn't work. But <clears throat> for me, particularly, whenever I've run in you know really high profile shoes, it it kind of slows me down a little bit, and and um, I feel like it takes away my ability to run on technical terrain, so I've just kind of avoided that a little bit. Uh, well, you know, you the, know, I think it can. <clears throat> go ahead. I'm sorry. No, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say is that what's what's interesting <laughs> about what you're saying is that those type of shoes were originally created for downhill, uh, highly technical terrains, and uh, you know, I have some friends that are in that industry that you know, over conversation with me. They were trying to give me the whole heritage behind the design, and they suggested that these guys were that kind of came up with this whole concept initially. You know, they were real big downhill runners, and uh, right. they they basically were looking to see if they can throw some pillows under their feet to mitigate some of the impact on you know on the harsh downhills. And 
And, um, you know, for whatever it's worth, I, I just it's a curiosity more so than me trying to, to pose a rant one way or the other. I, I know some guys that are really yeah. fast, like you, you suggested, that wear those type of shoes. Michael Wardian, for one, is screaming right. fast. And, you know, he's sponsored by Hoka right now. So, you know, who's to say? Right. right? Yeah, you know, like I, I think, um, like I was saying before, you know, I think – it can it can definitely help you on certain type of courses um, having you know a thicker midsole. Um, now on technical terrain, I just you know I don't know where they got that information. That's just not true at all. Um, you know now on a road or on something that's real smooth, yeah, you could definitely uh, benefit from having some pillows under your feet. But when you're talking about really technical boulder kind of fields, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. Right. Well, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. I think that, you know, for for all the things that I do and all the work I've done with so many people, where running gait and uh, you know running issues are concerned, injuries are concerned, I find that the the closer I get people to the ground, the more efficiently they're able to make contact with the earth. Um, most of the problems that they experience tend to go away. So, uh, for whatever it's worth, uh, and not to not to you know beat this to death, but I, I just wanted to get your feedback on it. No, uh, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, it's it's definitely a, a topic that's, uh, you know, it's growing. Everyone is now, because Hoka's gotten so big, I think it's causing a lot of discussion. People are like, hey, you know, what, what shoe can I use? What profile is going to be better for me? And so it's becoming a popular topic. So, you know, I think it's really relevant. Well, some of the guys that are really known for uh, radical uh, downhill and, and steep uh, racing, uh, Killian Jornet, for, for example, you know, he doesn't, I don't think he wears that type of shoe. He's, he's pretty much in a minimal shoe, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Killian goes even more minimal than I do for down. Right. For I've seen him on some really gnarly stuff, and he he goes more more minimal than I do. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's pretty impressive. So on that note, you know, speaking of him, he's done some really crazy things recently, and I, I wonder, do you, in the back of your mind, do you think in terms of trying to uh, edge up on that type of extreme running, you know, or, you know, running up these really, really steep and high altitude uh, mountains and, and to see whether you can capture some of the titles and that kind of thing? In uh, races, you know, like the FKT thing is kind of lame to me. Um, not a huge fan of that idea. So, you know, uh, definitely in a race atmosphere, yeah, I'd love to, to get out there and, and compete with guys like him and other guys in the world. Um, but, yeah, the FKT thing is – not something that I'll go chasing. No. Well, you know, I, you know I just, I don't like, it's not regulated for one. And I, that's the one thing I really, I, I like to compete. And that's the whole reason I feel like a lot of us become athletes and then runners or basketball players is you are competitive at some point and you want to compete. Um, FKT to me, you're just out by yourself, you know, chasing, a, you know, pointless time. It's unregulated. There's no drug testing. There's no course marshals. There's nothing there's no nobody else out there racing with you. So for me, it's like I don't think it's worth publicity at all. It's just like something you did for training. You know, I'm not out there bragging about my training every day. Hey, I got this record up the street by my house. You know, like I mean, it doesn't. It's training. You know, I want to. See, I, I we're we're here to compete, and um, you know, I think that's what's important. Right. So. Uh... Oh my God! I was just—I'm just trying to imagine the records you could you could uh, pull up from you know the 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 things you've done in your neighborhood. Well, yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, uh, me and my <laughs> training partner. You know, it's funny. Um, 
there's a couple times where I've recorded our workouts, uh, like uh, data-wise. And, you know, um, you can go online and you can upload them to certain websites and you can see how how it ranks up. And it's like, you could if you're a good runner and you're in your local in your local area, you can get FKTs every day if you want. I mean, FKTs they're not a competitive thing. It's not a big deal, you know. Um, I think it's sad that there's so many uh, pro athletes out there now trying to become famous off of the idea of an FKT because it's like you, you're supposed to be competing. That was that was why you became an athlete. You know, what are you out here trying to get famous over a training run for? So you that. know. For for those in the audience that are not familiar with that term, explain what an FKT is. Well, in short, it's based, it's it's FKT stands for fastest known time, and um, basically, you, you know, you pick a route, you go run it, and and a whole bunch of other people have probably done it, or a couple other people, or maybe only five people, and um, you know, you get the time, and you can be known as having that FKT on that yeah. route. Well, I got you know, some. I segment. got some. I got some friends that are kings of that, you know. Uh, you know, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw them under the bus, but I will tell you there was an event w- went from L.A. to Las Vegas, and they they you know they coined it as the world record for for that event, and point being is that nobody else did it, so it you know, it was they did a great job. It was a, you know they had great times, whatever. But it, there's nothing to measure it against. There's nobody else has done it. Yeah, and my thing is is like you know. <laughs> The fact that it is unregulated, there's ways to cheat it. You know, I guess there's been talk about people cheating, like using a mountain bike for certain areas and saying they ran it. And, I mean, there's all these different ways you can cheat it because it's just UPS coordinates. So, for me, I'm like, I don't pay attention to it. Even when when I go to a race and, you know, and I'm going against a competitor and, and I hear them talking about FKTs, right then, immediately, I know that they're not ready to race. Because they they're talking about competing against nobody, you, right. you know. If you're if you're an athlete and you're a professional athlete, you need to be competitive. And right. talking about training runs, and, you know, really is, and it doesn't put any fear in my heart. That's for sure. Right. So uh, you know, I I I, uh, I invited you uh, a while back to to participate in this this Spartan race in the Bahamas. I'd love to see you show up for that. Have you ever thought about trying something like that? Um, you know, I don't know. I, th- I was just talking to, you know, my buddy Tim Sennett recently about it. And I was saying how, you know, I, I don't know if I'll do it while I'm competing professionally as a runner. Um, you know, I definitely think they're, they're really attractive. It's something that, uh, I probably would love to do before I die. It's one of those things, you know, it's just seems like it's, pretty fun um i don't know if i would do it as a, um as a competitive athlete maybe i'd do it for fun when i retire or something like that but right. um no i you know it, it depends i guess it depends on the course and you know the time of the year you know like that race that you told me about you know had i not had anything going on you know it, it might have sounded like you know more feasible for me but at this point it's kind of difficult well the, the, here here's where i where i'm going with this and the reason i even asked is is what I, I'm just I'm like a fly on the wall. I, I'm this you know trained observer. I'm looking at what's going on with various sports and endurance sports, and you know the struggle I see for professional athleticism and endurance sport is obviously making enough money to support yourself to continue to be at a high level of achievement. And you know right, because right. because because of the nature of these events, 
being uh, spectator friendly, where you know they're actually um, television friendly. You know, and NBC jumped on the Spartan races. They've, they've committed to twelve uh, episodes that they're gonna they're gonna do coverage on, which is you know it's gonna explode the sport because people are gonna see it. It's gonna it's gonna have popularity because it it like I say it's. It's like NASCAR. It's like everybody watches for the explosions. They're not concerned about who's going to win. They want to see. They want to see some wrecks, <laughs> the carnage, right? And, and the Spartan right. racing is. It's just. It's. It's. It's chock full of potential carnage, and people love that. So uh, these athletes and some of them that I'm actually working with right now, um, they're they're set up to make a pretty decent living. So get a guy like uh, uh, Mike Wardian or. Uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, 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 Nicodemus uh, Holland. You know, they're looking at this, going, you know what? I I could do this, and you know, walk away from an event, you know, with maybe a five thousand dollar purse on a weekend, and and basically, you know, we're talking about a sprint event, you know, where you maybe you're in it for less than thirty minutes, and and you know, you paid the bills. So this is yeah. just kind of where I'm going. I, I just was curious to know whether, um, you know, from the standpoint of as capable as you are would be appealing to to make a little bit of a left or right hand turn to you know stock up your coffers that's all it was yeah you know i don't it's it's difficult there's a lot of things that um i think are really attractive to, you know for obstacle racing and then there's some things that would concern me you know in terms of you know like the insurance and things like that and um you know if i get hurt or or if I get, you know, some kind of infection from, you know, touching, you know, all this nasty stuff or, or going yeah. to the dirty water, you know, you hear these things, you know, I'm just saying what I've heard, you know, obviously I've never done one, so I can't speak from experience, but, um, you know, there's things like that that concern me because it's like, well, if something happens to me, how do I know the race can take care of me? You know, with running, you're a little bit more protected in terms of a lot of races have insurance. And then there's some races where, you know, unlike the one I did in Mexico, there are some races that are not technical like that at all, or you're just going uphill or something like that, for example, and you don't have too much danger in the way. But it seems like every Spartan race, there is that element of danger or, um, you know, some danger, basically, something that could happen to you or something that could happen to your health or you can get injured. And so to me, it's like if the races don't have a type of insurance to protect the athletes, that concerns me a tad bit, even though, you know, maybe you could make a little bit more money with it. But, um, you know, as far as I know, like, I don't know any athletes who are in, in, you know, obstacle racing who are getting, you know, contracts as big as they are in running. You know, mm. I personally haven't been offered to do, you know, something in obstacle racing where the contract would be anywhere near what I get with running. You know, now someone like, um, you know, Max, who's kind of new to it, I don't know what his situation is, but I would imagine because he has so much more more experience than a lot of, you know, runners who are trying to get into it now, he could probably get, you know, a decent contract offer for obstacle racing. Well, I know he's racing. As a matter of fact, he's racing on the, on the 24th. Uh, it's an Atlas race. We talked about it. And he's he's pretty well committed to uh, – I, I don't know if the word commit is, is appropriate, but he's definitely – He's he's tipped his hat. He's he's taken a look at it hard, and uh, you know he's he's won some races. And, and you know what the financial ramifications behind it are, I don't know. I know that he's also uh, you know his big thing right now is he's he's trying to set a PR for himself at the LA Marathon coming up, and uh, that's one of the reasons why he didn't uh, vie for the cruise. But 
Anyway, it should be an interesting. Right. Uh, I think I'll, I'll probably grow hair on my back just being on the boat from all the testosterone that'll be rolling off the ship when I get in there. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> All right, so uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, I'm just trying to get the technical stuff out of the way. Um, I know that you're a strong advocate of heart rate, and right. uh, you know, and I, uh, you know, just reading through the notes uh, from your blog, that you you were you were paying pretty close attention to what's going on with your heart rate as you're climbing and what you can get away with and what you can't, and you know, you know, I see here where you you're you made a comment about on the way up, you noticed that your heart rate was at you know getting near. Uh, 85% of maximum heart rate is showing up on your Mio Fuse. And, uh, you know, you thought, oh, this is a little bit too soon. I need to rein myself back a little bit. And, you know, by paying attention like that and kind of governing the intensity on the way up, you basically were able to create a little bit more intelligent pace in respect to your energy levels. Uh, give me some thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think when you're at altitude, especially extreme altitude, your heart rate is really important. You know, there's some people who don't, you know, they don't think heart rate altitude, you know, heart rate training is um, important. And, uh, and, you know, I think it depends on the event you're doing. There's some events where, yeah, maybe your heart rate isn't super important, but in training, no matter what you're doing, it can be important to get, you know, a hundred percent effort out of yourself and to get the best effort out of yourself, I should say. Um, you know, if you're sick or something, your heart rate will tell you, you know, if you're in peak performance, your, you know, your heart rate will tell you before you even start the race, you know, when you wake up, you know, what kind of fitness you're in. And so, um, <clears throat> for a race like this, you know, you're going through so much, you know, extreme altitude that the, the problem is that you can go out and, you know, say be at 90% of your heart rate and all of a sudden, it can just really flip on you and you can feel really bad. And so for me, making sure that I didn't get too close to that percentage of my maximum heart rate too soon was important because I wanted to be able to run strong at the end because I just figured, you know, the last part of the climb and the first part of the really technical descent, I pretty much figured whoever ran that the fastest was going to win. And so for me, I made sure my heart rate was low until it was time to strike. Okay, so... Uh, let's talk about perception for a second. Now, let's try to uh, uh, build this scenario. You're, you're you're running hard. You're going up mountain. You're at altitude. You look down at your watch, and you see that your heart rate's running about 85, pushing towards 90%. And your perception is, hey, you know, I feel pretty good. But you're looking at what the cost is relative, uh, uh, indifferent of your per, your perception of your effort. You still are going to respect what the watch is saying rather than just saying, I feel good. I'll just go ahead and do it anyway, right? And to a certain extent, I have I have spoke on that before. But um, for example, if I'm in a race where I'm going for a course record, and I know I need to be at certain points at certain times, obviously it's a little bit harder to listen to your heart rate. Whereas in a race where, you know, I was feeling good and I was on pace to get the record, and I knew I knew what I had to do. You know, I knew I knew the margins. Now, had I got within say the last mile of the ascent. And I'm, you know, 20 minutes off the record. Then I know, hey, I, well, even though I'm my heart rate's high, I need to keep I need to keep it here because I'm really far off the record. Whereas, you know, in a, in a race where you're a little bit closer to your goal, maybe not necessarily the record, but co- closer to what you want to run, what you want to do in your performance, 
then you can be a little bit smarter about, you know, hey, I can manipulate my pace. I can slow down a little bit. Uh, I can pick it up a little bit. Um, so, yeah, it's just, I think it just depends on what your goals are. But for the, I would say seven times out of ten, I, I will listen to my heart rate in a race. Well, what I used to tell people, and, um, in, in, you know, I hate to use a study of one uh, in respect to advising people because everybody's responses are different and very unique. But uh, I, the first marathon that I've ever run, which was way back in the day, um, you know, I remember everybody, you know, trying to scare me off of this, this uh, the wall, the 20-mile mark, and be careful of the 20-mile mark, and you hit the wall, blah, blah, blah. And this is before heart rate monitors were available to us. And, you know, I just was going for it. And, you know, I was running, feeling pretty good. And, you know, I got to 20 miles. And I remember even, like, I, I must have been hysterical because I was, like, talking to the crowd. Say, wow, 20 miles. I'm here. This is nothing. What's the big deal? <laughs> and, like, it seemed like five steps after I opened my big mouth, I felt like somebody hit me with a hammer. And, and I was just toast. And so the, the, what I'm getting at is that let's say that you're rolling along and everything looks, feels pretty good. And, but relative to what's really going on in respect to your anaerobic threshold and what your heart rate is doing while you're running and assuming that you're, you know, maybe 10, 15 beats above where you should be. And your perception is that you're all good. And then all of a sudden you run into the same episode that I ran into. It becomes a function of, to some degree, uh, glycogen depletion. It just all of a sudden when the tank is empty, it's empty. Uh, and, you know, I, I should preface by saying there's never a time where you're going to be empty. But when, when things get dangerously low and your body identifies that things are going low, it just shuts you down. And there's it, it no warning to it a lot of times. You don't, you don't get this, hey, be careful because in a few minutes things are going to go badly if you're not careful. It just happens and you're done. And if you respected the information leading up to that episode and reined yourself back, odds are you could push the window back before you 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 have this this uh, this failure. So I guess that's kind of what I was coming from, where I was re- referring to perception relative to what's actually going on, because your heart rate doesn't lie. I mean, it, it's telling you how your body's faring relative to the efforts that you're you're putting forth, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think. And, you know, I think also the the hardest thing is to slow down when you're feeling great. And, you know, at the, in the beginning of a race or even in the middle, say you, you feel great and you're not listening to your heart rate, the one thing that you can't see that your heart rate is linked to is a lot of processes in your body like hormones and adrenaline and things like that. And, and these things will give you a perception of how you're feeling. Like you said, you know, it's a perception. It's not a, a real <laughs> perception of how you'll feel in an hour. And so, um, you know, I think everyone has a tendency to do that sometimes in their careers to, you know, get a little bit too, you know, antsy and and do something very stupid early on in a race. And, um, it, you know, it happens to everybody. Right. So um, you got this you got this crazy mountain thing out of the way in Mexico. What's on the agenda for the next uh, few months? Um, for me, um you know, I had a I had a pretty bad sprain on my ankle in Mexico, and so um, I was supposed to start training for cross country. You know, shortly after I took a little break, and you know, I had to take a little bit more time than I wanted to just to let my ankle heal up. But you know, at the moment, I'm um, you know my main goal right now is cross country season, and um, really focusing on trying to get um, you know top 
I'd like to be top, you know, 10 in the nation at the championship for cross country if I can, and uh, maybe even give myself a, a chance at making the national team for the world championship um, for cross country. And, um, you know, if not, then so be it. You know, the, the the big goal is to get out there and compete, you know, with the best guys in the nation and to be competitive. And um, after that, you know, I'll start focusing on some other racing, some road stuff and, um you know, and then trail season will be coming up on us pretty quick. So have you ever thought, I'm sure you do. I mean, it's probably, um, you know, towards the latter part of this, this whole episode with the cross country and the crazy mountain stuff, but have you ever in the back of your mind thought, I really wonder if I put a hundred percent energy into running a marathon, what I can do? Uh, yeah, I think that, I think that any athlete like myself who does a lot of different things, um, you always wonder, on what what you could do, um, you know, but I don't question myself for that too much just because I enjoy what I do, and I feel like if I were to give up everything, then I wouldn't be happy to just focus on one thing, and so um, the whole idea that I run is, is I'm happy. I like competing. I like doing different things, and so um, I think it would just cause more stress in my life if I were to give up everything and focus on one. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You're, you're the second athlete that told me that. Um, you know, uh, yeah, the, I think I know who the other one is. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it was interesting because, you know, a lot of these guys, um, as far as achieving a particular end, is almost secondary to the fact that they enjoy challenging themselves in all these different arenas. Uh, and I think that's pretty amazing because, you know, I got a guy like Hunter McIntyre I'm working with right now. He sent me a schedule for this year, and I'm like, Oh my God, dude! What are you doing? I mean, you're out of your mind. The stuff that he has planned is crazy. I mean, I mean, yeah, flat he's, out. He's, he's an athlete, man. That guy is a freaking he's athlete. Nuts. He's. I mean, I'm working yeah. with him, and and you know, I, I I've been working on his running skills and stuff like this, and he he is a phenomenal athlete for a big guy, surprisingly fast. I mean, really surprisingly yeah. fast. But he's got this agenda that is. I mean, I, I wish I had it in front of me so I could I could spill it off, but it's freaking crazy and i said dude you know if you just stick to what you do you could really you know kick some butt and make a lot of money and you know he's like yeah but you know what he goes i just wouldn't be happy i just want to i want to challenge myself in all these different arenas and i just you know i'm like whatever i i guess i i don't know maybe i'm just a little bit more of a carpet bagger uh, you know, well, you're, I, you're I, coming you're coming from a you know you're coaching a lot of athletes for high performance and um really specializing in, in getting the most out of that one sport. Whereas, you know, he's doing a, a niche sport where, um, you got, you got to be good at multiple different, you know, multiple kind of things. And, you know, you have to have multiple skill set. And so I think, you know, his, his biggest thing is he wants to be a better runner, but also, you know, he's got a lot of strength and power. He can do a lot of the, he's, you know, one of the best guys in almost every aspect of obstacle racing. And, you know, the running is the one area he's lacking in terms of competing with maybe some of the guys that he wants to beat. And so um, for a sport like that, it almost makes sense to be, you know, multifaceted. Well, he's spotting most of the guys that are beating him in the run by 50 pounds. You know, he's... Wow, yeah. Yeah, he's rolling at about 190, 195 pounds. And he could still throw down a 430 mile which is just crazy fast for a guy that big. Right. But yeah, anyway. Well, look, uh so your ankle's good now? You're you're 100%? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, training has um been going well and um you know, the cross country championships are coming up in February and 
yeah, man, I'm looking to to get out there and and run my guts out. You know, uh, your buddy Tim Sennett, uh, uh, we we've been kind of um, cracking back and forth at each other. Now he's talking about showing up on this ship uh, simply because I promised I'd bring a, a a bottle of 30 year old single malt scotch with me, and, and he said he'd share it with me. So. <laughs> For whatever oh, nice, it's worth, nice. <laughs> for whatever it's worth, that's going to be my event on the boat. I'm just going to hang out and sip on good scotch and watch these guys beat themselves to death. Yeah, man. That's well. I hope you guys have a good time, man. I know you will. It seems like a yeah. a good time of the year to be on a warm island. That's for sure. Well, listen, uh, Joe. I, I I always love talking to you. Um, you. You're definitely one of the baddest runners on the on the planet right now. And and uh, whenever I see some of the things that you post. Um, my jaws dropped and I always share it because look at Joe's doing, I don't believe, you know, it's like 15,000, 16,000 feet of running, man. That's just huge. That's, that's, that's crazy. So, uh, my hat's, my hat's off to you, brother. And, uh, uh, stay in touch. Love to get you back on again, because I'm sure there'll be something else to talk about very soon. Um, but, uh, listen, give a, give a shout out, let people know how to find your blog so they could keep up with you. Uh, yeah, so um, my blog is uh, Um You can get me on Twitter. My name is Joe Jeezy on there. And Instagram also, same name, Joe Jeezy. Um, yeah, and... Uh, you might want to spell yeah. that out. Uh, J-O-E-G-E-E-Z-I. All right. And also I have an Athlete Biz um, page as well now. And so they can... You can get get on that page, and there's uh you know ways to get in touch with me for coaching or speaking engagements and things like that, and you can see what's going on with me and um yeah it's it's a cool little social network platform excellent well look uh stay healthy um consider wearing the helmet for me i mean I'm an old man i, I don't want to see you hurt. <laughs> I'm looking after you like your daddy man I, just, <laughs> I don't want to see you get hurt you gotta stay yeah. safe and and keep doing what you're doing. But uh, yeah. look, uh, uh, enjoy your weekend and train hard and 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 kill it, man. Yeah, hey man, I uh, you know I want to say thank you to you as well, Richard. Man, you've been really great for promote promoting um, you know multiple sports and multiple athletes. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, you know. It's something that's really important for our sport and for the profession. So, uh, you know, I think I speak on behalf of all the athletes that have been on your show, man. We really appreciate your service and what you've been doing for us. Well, that that's you know, I got chicken skin listening to said. So, but I try to do my my little parcel, man. I'm trying to do my bit. Yeah, man. It's it. You know, it's it's important. You know, and especially in this day and age, uh, the media aspect and. Um, interviews and things like that, letting athletes right. be heard. You know, it's becoming more important than it was, say, ten years ago. And so, and it's going to continue to be more important as we uh, move forward with athletics. So, you know, guys like yourself are really, really important to the sport. You know, to the well, growth of the sport and maintaining the sport. Well, thank you for the acknowledgement. Have a great weekend, my brother. I will talk to you soon. All right, man. You take care, Rich. All right. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.